Hi, and welcome to the Trailside Channel. We are so glad you're joining us. God has a place and a purpose for you, and we hope this message helps you find that and know how much He loves you. Thanks for stopping by and enjoy the message. Well, good morning. Good morning. Let me pray real quick. Father, you're good, and we know that uh, as we dive into your word this morning that you will meet us where we are. Lord, we pray that you would uh, speak, that you would... Um, be here with us that you would begin to loosen chains and that uh, as we seek to love you and seek to share what it is to know your gospel, that you would allow us to be impactful into the city that needs it so desperately. We love you. Thank you. To your name we pray. Amen. You can turn to 1 Corinthians 2 with me, if you will. My name is Sean and uh, the pastor here at Trailside, and I want to read to you um, some words uh, from the Apostle Paul um, that I think should be much more challenging than we've allowed them to be in the past. And this is what he says in the first five verses of uh, chapter 2. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. When I think of why we planted Trailside, why we, why we took this huge step, why that was important. What, what struck me was the amount of people who have been hurt. Hurt by church, hurt by church people, hurt by the gospel, told they didn't fit in. <clears throat> they were burned by church. And then I, I felt a deep conviction. And my wife and I felt a deep conviction to start a church that had a big tent in a city that was known to be Traditional and harsh, incredibly conservative. And so we decided there was a place for people who were hurt. There was a place for people who were struggling. There was a place for people who didn't have it all together. And that, that we were supposed to put that place in this city. So what is that? What do you mean by a big tent? What it means is that we have two sets of theology in our city, in our state, in our south. We have biblical theology and we have conservative moralism theology. We have a, a compass of how we should be because that's what nice people do. And the more I thought about what we wanted to be is we wanted to have a central doctrine that was true. We want to talk about Jesus the cross, the crucifixion, the resurrection of the dead, and, and, and why that means everything. And if that meant we had to go in and dive in on stuff that was a little harder, that was socially tough, like gender issues and sexuality and abortion and hell and racism, then we were willing to do that because it matters, because people need freedom, because people need to hear the gospel outside of just southern culture because there's people who are hurting we wanted to be a place 
where the gospel is preached. We want to be a place where Jesus is hailed as Savior, where he's honored as a king, where he's loved above all, where he's pursued as a living hope. And we wanted to do that honestly. We want to be a place where impact is felt within the city. We want to be a place where people can have skeptical doubts and thoughts and fears and ask questions and where that was okay, where you could come and it didn't have to be perfect and you don't have to be perfect. And we could take the stress off of this idea that to come to church you have to have everything together because so many people have walked in and out of churches because of that fear. I heard a story recently of a young mom who was 17 years old. It's a true story. 17 years old, newly pregnant. As the church found out, they called her to the front of the church, made her come, and in front of their entire church, confessed her sin. And once that was done, they took a newly pregnant, scared 17-year-old girl, and they kicked her out of the church. And my question is, how, how can we allow that to be a reality? Has, has the gospel lost its power so much so that we are willing to just have it be another thing? That we're allowed to, to see it and it not be a living hope, but just something that we do. To where we can say the more valuable thing is what a 17-year-old pregnant girl might say about our church to people instead of what Jesus says about someone who is hurting. Are we okay with that? Are we okay with people walking every day scared because they think that no one could possibly love them? Are we okay with fatherlessness? Are we okay with brokenness? Are we okay with people who have told they don't have a place because of how they believe they were created to be. Or where there's no place for shame to be met with grace. Where church is a place where you come and you put your best foot forward so that people can see you and say, that's somebody who follows Jesus because they're smiling and they look good and their family is good. And they have great marriage, and all of these things get in the way. They have a nice house and good jobs. God's obviously blessing them. Are we at a place in our culture and in church today where we're able to say that is the measure of God's goodness and grace by how we put ourselves out there to other people and that that's enough? I don't think I am. I don't think I'm okay with 17-year-old pregnant girls being kicked out of church. I don't think I'm okay with people who are making terrible decisions on Saturday feeling like they can't come into the presence of God, the very place they need to be because of the fear that they feel because of what our culture tells them Jesus says about them instead of what Jesus actually says, which is you are beloved and cared for. How could we allow something like that to be a reality? See, I have a strong belief 
that a church that demands only perfection from people is just as theologically in the wrong as a church that demands the full autonomy of a sinful person. That, that a church that would say we have to be perfect in everything we do is just as much in the wrong as one that says you can do whatever you want and God will just forgive you. That's why Paul says, shall we keep on sinning so grace may increase, may it never be. But we live in the reality that that grace can't exist either because we have to have everything perfected. And so church has become a place for perfect people to come be perfect. Instead of people who are trying and fighting to have a place of grace and peace and hope. And that breaks my heart. I didn't realize it, but this entire concept actually, excuse me, um, actually raised some big questions in my own life through this entire plant process that we've had here, becoming a real church. And I remember asking myself as I watched traditional church conservatism run rampant. I remember asking, what do I actually believe? What do I actually believe and what have I been conditioned to know? What have I been told a good Christian does these things? And said, that was scripture. What have I been told that we believe as people who follow Jesus for the sake of looking good and feeling all together instead of what the gospel actually calls us to, which I believe I'm realizing now is something much more radical? And with that, taboo was born. See, I was was unaware that that question would actually begin a very harsh journey in me. And and I was unknowingly taking that alongside thousands of other believers. And I think the reality is that many of you have also been through this. And so the only way for us to walk through this is to acknowledge it and walk through it together. And it's a word that is big and scary in the evangelical Christian world called deconstruction. Deconstruction. And it's, it's this idea that we are taking what we've known and ripping it down piece by piece by piece so that we can reestablish our own faith and know what it is that we actually believe and hold true. And a lot of churches are very scared of this idea because it leads sometimes people who are not led through that to give up faith altogether. But the proper deconstruction of faith is a reconstruction of following Jesus And it creates in us hearts that follow him fully. Because we don't do things because we think we should. We do things because we know them to be true. See, a huge problem in church culture is that we do things because we think that's what Christians do. So we do things like hide alcohol or shamefully go out and have one night stands or have anger and resentment. We have our sin that's hidden instead of sin that's redeemed, that we're delivered from. And it's because we feel pressure to have it all together instead of be honest about what it is Jesus calls us to. And that's why this is gonna be a very hard series. See, the idea of deconstruction shouldn't be scary for us. Because it's not that theology is bad, it's that the application of bad theology is bad. 
And so we've told people they don't belong. We've told people they don't have a safe place. We've told people that church in the South looks like this box, and if you get outside of that, it's not church. And I'm here to tell you that is not what we're about because it's not what we have to be about when we talk about Jesus. I remember a number of months ago, it wasn't spring break and we had a lot of people here. And and I mentioned something about anxiety not, not being sinful, but being hard. And depression being a disease and a sickness and not a lack of faith. And you would have thought that I took this one particular person and punched them in the face because they said, that's impossible, it can't be that. That if we really trusted Jesus, that we wouldn't have anxiety. I've got news for you. I'm a pastor who takes anxiety medicine because I've dealt with it my whole life. And in God's goodness, he allowed me to understand that and have someone who understood more of who I was to help me get to where I need to be so that I can be the father, husband, and pastor, and believer that I need to be. It can't be a point of contention that we point at people and tell them they're not good enough. It has to be a place where we come together and say that the gospel meets us where we are and changes things. And so when we deconstruct It isn't to tear down Jesus, it's to make much of him. There was a a Christian philosopher, and his name is John Stott, I believe, and he, he said, and I don't agree, but he said as he went through a deconstruction of his own faith that everyone should be an atheist once. And I thought, well, I don't like that at all. (laughs) But I was when I was younger. But, but I think that we can, can honestly seek Jesus in a place where we're going, God, show up or don't, and I'll make my decision based on that. Where we're not scared of that, that construct. We're not, we're not fearful that we might lose our faith because when we identify who Jesus is and honestly seek and follow him, he will build himself up in us. So I'm not scared of that. There's a a big SAT word that I'll give you, a theological SAT word. It's epistemology. Very fancy, very fancy. And epistemology is a theological and a philosophical, 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 excuse me, falafel, I'm food on the brain. And a philosophical word that means the theory of knowledge. It is the investigation of what distinguishes justified belief from opinion. The the idea of epistemology is to ask a simple question. Why do we believe what we do? I want to ask you a question. Do you feel like you can challenge everything that you know about Jesus and that Jesus will still stand time, the test of time? Do you honestly believe that? That if you put Jesus up against everything that the world says he isn't, that he will stand strong. That he will prove himself. I've said this before, the line of Judah does not need a cage. A lot of people say, well, God and science. Oh, I don't believe in God because I believe in science. That's ludicrous. God created science. He is not scared of it. 
you don't have to be fearful that Christmas is celebrated out of fear of paganism. You don't have to be scared of that. It is okay to say, I believe in Jesus, and we celebrate Christmas in December because way back when, Christians tried to take Saturnalia out of the, out of the loop and make it something holy. That's okay. When you celebrate Christmas does not demand that Jesus was never born and didn't come. It's just a matter of a day and a year of when we traditionally celebrate something. That isn't fearful. You should not fear that. Because God isn't scared of what he created. And I'll be honest, I actually pushed back on this series for a long time. We were supposed to do this taboo series about a year ago. And I was scared. I was scared. Because I didn't, I didn't know of any church planter in their right mind who wanted to talk to a, to a group of people in Traveler's Rest in Greenville County, South Carolina, about gender and racism and alcohol in hell, and abortion. I, I didn't know anyone who actually was willing to do that. And so I listened to my fear instead of Jesus and his leadership. But we're gonna talk about those things over the next four weeks. Because I believe we owe it to ourselves to be different. We owe it to ourselves that if we are going to be different, we have to separate the cultural world from our scriptural world. And the only way, that's the only way to do that is the only way to properly view our culture through faith. The only way to see the world through the lens of the gospel is to first separate them and know what our faith says and is, and then view the world through that lens. That's the only way to have honest conversation because faith that is viewed through culture will always fail and will always break down. And it's why church is the way it is right now. It's why if you go look at um, any, anyone who's Methodist or anyone that you know, there's a great huge split about to happen in the Methodist church because they're beginning to view faith and truth through a lens of culture instead of a lens of the gospel. And they're about to split. And people are deeply hurt because the conversation was about a symptomatic sin instead of the gospel of grace. And they're viewing faith through culture. But I believe that we do ourselves no favor when we're trying to answer big questions with canned cultural answers. That's how bad theology happens. How many of you guys have ever heard someone say things like, well, God won't give you more than you can handle when you're about to fall apart in pieces? How many of you have heard people say, only God can judge me when you see someone running down the path to destruction of themselves. How many of you have seen and heard people say, well, you know, God helps those who help themselves as a means to not reach out and buy a homeless person a taco or to take a young future 17-year-old mother in and love her in the way Jesus does. And see, I believe that's what Paul also knew when he began writing these words to the Corinthians. In fact, the background to this scripture that we've read is this, is that Paul had recently, very recently, been beaten and imprisoned in Philippi. He had been run out of Thessalonica and Berea. 
which I've also been run out of Berea, but that's a different one. He'd been scoffed at in Athens and left in disgrace. Or if you really want to get down to what Paul's mentality was with church and why that was okay, I want to read to you out of Acts 14, starting in verse 19. It's two verses. This is what happens. Now the wrong number. Sorry. But the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul for preaching the gospel. And they dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. So Paul, preaching the gospel, knowing what he's about to say, was actually stoned. And like, this isn't like pebbles or road rash. This is large boulders being thrown at you and your body being broken to the point where he actually was dragged outside of the city and left to die like trash. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and re-entered the city, and on the next day, he went with Barnabas to Derby, which is another part of the same town. See, when Paul speaks about the gospel, when he speaks about meeting people, he's speaking from a place where he was destroyed and left for dead and got up and walked back in because that's what the gospel does. You walk back into the fear. You don't run from it. And that's really scary for people like us who like to have it all together. Because at the time, after Paul was imprisoned and beaten and shamed and left for dead, at the time, Paul went into a city called Corinth. A little background about Corinth. Corinth was the epitome, the epitome of moral corruption. of paganism, of ruthless sinfulness. Corinth was like what we think of Vegas times a thousand. Corinth was the hotbed of sin. Corinth was a place that the dirtiest of the dirty, the angriest of the angry, the worst of the worst went. And when Paul went in to plant a church in the city, he did so knowing that everyone around him probably told him he was going to become one of them instead of them becoming one of him. In fact, in a letter that's actually now been lost, Paul writes to Timothy. And he, tells, he actually says in this letter, that there was fear that he would become Corinthianized, which is to be identified as being morally corrupt to the extreme. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine planning a church and going to a place of people saying, don't do that, you'll become one of them? So what changes that? What fixes that? It's because Paul knew that if he went into Corinth and preached the gospel, that it would not make him Corinthianized. It would make Corinth baptized, Christian. It would give them hope. It would answer sin. That's what Paul knew. Paul knew that by carrying the gospel into that city, that the city would change. He would not be changed by the city. And so when we talk about things in taboo in this next few weeks, and even as it goes forward, 
We cannot be scared of what we might say because we're becoming more like culture. We are not becoming more like culture. We are going into culture, pulling them out of that and into a place where there's hope and peace and answers. Where there's joy and redemption. And this is because as we get back into the word that Paul Shares three truths that I want us to know and focus today. The first truth is this in the first two verses. It's that Jesus and the cross are enough. This is what Paul says. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. You see, when Paul went into this city, it wasn't that he would go in and have to come up with these huge terms and blow people's minds. It was that he came in with the gospel and that that was enough. John MacArthur, famed theologian, writes this. He says, in periods of unsettled faith, skepticism, and mere curious speculations in the matter of religion. Teachers of all kinds swarm like flies in Egypt. If there are people who desire a calf to worship, then a ministerial calf maker is readily found. And he continues with this. They are not looking for a word from God to believe, but for a word from man to consider. I'm, I'm grieved personally, like, like in here in the heart of hearts. I'm grieved when I see pastors and preachers and teachers run to eloquence and the desire to be heard as profound at the cost of theolo- theological truth, reality, and hope. And it's rampant. I was actually, while I was studying for this in the last couple of weeks, I, I saw a sermon, and this is legitimately what the pastor did. He got up, he read something out of uh, the Old Testament. In 2 Kings, I think it was, he was talking about war. And he said, so today I'm gonna give you seven steps to seismic surrender. And it was mind-blowing. To listen to. And in a story where God was the victor, in a story where the Lord came and did something that only the Lord could do and slaughtered an army that was against King Hezekiah, the statement was how Hezekiah's surrender offers hope and freedom to you financially and with your health, and that you are a victor instead of God being the hero. See, no wonder we have a problem today with people who need hope, it's because we have told them that they have to be the hero instead of that they have a hero they can run to. That's why people are leaving church by the thousands. Because in a story where God was the hero, a church of thousands heard seven steps to seismic surrender instead. But if we're going to properly knock it down to the studs as we continue this series, we must first agree with Paul. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. 
For I decided to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. Not to have all the answers. Not to take all of your issues and put them into one container and go, here, throw a little Jesus on it and it'll be fixed. But to say the only hope that we have is first established in the cross and in Jesus, the Savior, crucified. It's all we have. Is all we have. And it's not Paul saying that he only preaches and teaches scripture which deals with the atonement. In fact, in Acts 20, he says, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. It's instead to say, apart from the cross, these conversations don't matter. Nothing we talk about will matter apart from the cross. Nothing. I'm not trying to save you from financial insecurity. I'm not trying to save you from feeling bad, depression, relationship breaking. I'm not doing any of that. I'm, I'm, I want to walk with you as we walk toward the gospel because if we don't know that it first starts with Jesus and him crucified, then we're wasting our time. Because he understands that apart from the cross, none of these conversations matter. That everything else is secondary, that the primary thing must remain the primary thing. When I was growing up, I didn't know Jesus, but when I met Jesus and I was 17, our youth pastor said something that was really cool that made me think he was really cool that I didn't really understand for a long time. So the main thing is keeping the main thing the main thing. I know I've talked about sounding really cool. I don't think you sound cool when you say that, but I think his point stands. See, it's a problem, church. It's a problem that in this day and age, we have allowed someone who follows Jesus to be, to be defined by if they play the lottery or if they cuss or if they have a beer on a Tuesday afternoon or if they've had an abortion or if they take medication or go to a psychiatrist. That, that's what we've allowed the church to become. And so we say that knowing Jesus is defined by those things. Cultural sin, however, being able to say things like that is manifested in scriptural ambiguity. And it has to be better. The longer that we take one verse out of context in order to prove our own point, to make ourselves feel better, is the moment that we can't or limit people from the ability to walk into a church and be met by Jesus. And for him to be the hero and the savior. And it grieves me. Because what we've done for people is that we have said, in order for them to have salvation and freedom from hell, that they first have to have salvation to our own moral standards. And so in an effort to clean them up and make them presentable, we have told people they can only sit in pews and chairs if they identify exactly the same way as we do. There's no place for grace. There's no place for hope. There's no place for fear. There's no place for not knowing. Instead, the only place we allow people is perfection. And if they don't meet that, they feel ostracized and not important. And they walk away. 
and we wonder why. And that's hard for me. Because the story of a 17-year-old girl getting kicked out of church is normal. It is not the anomaly. And that grieves me. Paul continues in verse 3 with our second truth of the day. I'm going to read 1 and 2 again to keep it in context here. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. See, the, the second truth that Paul understands that we need to know is that we cannot fear the conversation. Paul is going into the belly of the beast in Corinth. He's unafraid of what the response will be. But when you move into a series where you talk about heavy things like this and where we are in the Bible belt and that's different and it causes people to be uncomfortable, there are fears that are gonna come that I want you to recognize, that I recognize and that I want you to recognize that I have so that we can do this fairly and together, okay? You with me? Does that make sense? You follow me? I need you to hear this about me. I'm gonna confess this. It's gonna be on the internet. As a pastor of a young church where some weeks were full and some weeks obviously were not, I have a fear that this is so uncomfortable and so tough for our Southern culture that the response will be for people to pack it up and walk away and leave and label us and run. It's an honest fear I have. And I'll confess to you that that fear comes because it is by this ministry that I'm called, that my family is called, that I clothe my children, that I have a house to sleep in. But again, Paul says, I've know nothing among you except for Jesus and him crucified. And if I'm honest, this is a big risk for us, but we have to stay true to what scripture says. And, and I don't know that the application of some of these hard truths is what we've all heard for the last 20 years or 30 years or 40 years. And I have fear, or you might have fear rather, that, that this series and the things we talk about may have an immense challenge on your core cultural belief. That, that that fear of that immense challenge that you may have never known you held, that you've just been conditioned into, may cause you to question some things. And I'm here to tell you, keep the main thing, the main thing that Jesus crucified is everything and we will build on what everything else is. And it will be of the standard of who Jesus calls us to be. Because I get that. I know that talking about hard things may mean that you are immensely challenged and stretched to think differently and to challenge everything you ever thought. It was a very um, poignant moment in my life when I realized my parents actually could be wrong about something. 
I remember it. It wasn't long ago. There was a point in my life where if my mom and dad said it, I was kind of like, yeah, okay, whatever. Let me tell you about my parents. I love them. They're going to watch this. It's fine. My dad is a Democrat from Cleveland who hates guns and loves health care for everyone. My mom is a veiled conservative who thinks guns are cool but doesn't shoot them because my dad and sometimes votes for Trump and sometimes doesn't. And here I am, a gun-toting pastor. I had to come to a point where I realized something that my parents said may not be accurate. It may be because that's how they think about things, and I'm allowed to disagree with them. And when you take that and you put it into something as important as your faith and who you are and who Jesus is and what you've always thought, that can shake you to your core. But I want you to know the goal is that Jesus is the main thing and that him and who he is being crucified on a cross and resurrecting from the dead is the number one baseline for everything we will talk about. And so when it challenges you, Don't run. Embrace it. Talk about it. Consider it. Pray through it. So as we talked about a couple weeks ago, again, to be different, we have to be willing to be foolish for the gospel. That it is life for those who are being saved. It is everything. And Paul's statement is not to fear what may become, or what may come, excuse me, of the boldness of the gospel. It's that he will walk through it with us when we wonder. Listen, I am wildly aware that in a few weeks, I'm going to throw everything I have to get as many people here because I'm going to talk about racism and it existing and theologically why it shouldn't and that we have a place called Dixie Outfitters, which is actually labeled as a hate group, Two, five, two or four miles away, five, something like that. That we're in a city where people will fight over a flag. And whatever side of the equation you're on with that, but where that's a thing, I'm immensely aware of that. And I hope it challenges you because it challenges me. But I want to beg you to walk through it with me. Because people matter. And what Paul says is that he was with us in our weakness and in fear and much trembling. But we can't fear the conversation. And the final truth is this, truth three, that the willingness to walk through this will produce powerful results in people's lives and eternities. And you aren't the agent of that change. I'm going to read the whole thing again for you here. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Here we go. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but instead in the power of God. One of the worst things we can do is be a church that 
converts people into being trailsiders. I don't want that. Listen, if I'm a pastor that's good at converting people into things that people like me, I'm gonna annoy myself. Things are going, we don't need another one of me in this church. Don't want that. Be a mess. Because I mess things up. But what Paul said is that we have to have a willingness to walk through this because when it is about Jesus and when everything is laid on the foundation of who Jesus is and what Jesus did, then the power of God moves in people's lives and it breaks chains and it breaks standards and it breaks hearts for the gospel and for people. So when we see people who need help, we don't see them as helpless. We see them as someone who can see and hear the gospel and have their eternities and lives changed, who have hope. Who are the people that when when the disciples were walking to the gates in the first part of Acts, and a beggar who was laid in front of the gate, who could not move, who was paralyzed, begging for money, asked for some change, they looked at him and Peter said, I can't. I can't give you money, I don't have any. But here's what I can give you, Jesus, get up and walk. And he was restored. Charles Spurgeon, who was an incredible preacher, who's now in eternity and has been for a long time, said this. The power that is in the gospel does not lie in the eloquence of the preacher. Otherwise, men would be the converters of souls. Nor does it lie in the preacher's learning. Otherwise, it would consist in the wisdom of men. We might preach until our tongues rotted, till we would exhaust our lungs and die, but never a soul would be converted unless the Holy Spirit be with the word of God to give it the power to convert the soul. Church, it is not on you to convert people to have answers because you cannot take people where you have not gone. Jesus is the only one who has defeated death. Jesus is the only one who is resurrected. Jesus is the only one who has gone before you to prepare a place for you. All you can do is pick each other up and help walk toward him. Your goal is not to have all the answers and to be the savior of people. Your goal is to know Jesus and Jesus crucified and to walk with people and to not be fearful of what that actually means because people are worth it. I'm going to heaven. I will be with Jesus. I will give everything I have to make sure my family and friends are with Jesus, that my children are with me in eternity. I will die for that moment. But that is not enough. I don't want people to come and be baptized and to hear about Jesus and have their eternities changed so we can pat ourselves on the back. It's because people are dying and are being left behind And we are telling them that they aren't important because of the things they struggle with. And I'm done with that. I'm done with that. But we have to do it together. Because only honest questions, which bring honest answers, can create honest change. 
And as Paul finishes this section of scripture, he says, your faith should not rest in the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Church, I'm going to do something really wild. I'm going to ask you to walk through this with me every week because I need you to. And if you're watching on the internet or you're at home, I want you to be here to walk through it with me and with other people who need to hear it. We have to talk about it. We can't be fearful. We have to be willing to address these issues head on. Even when they don't feel good, even if, if it's hard, if it challenges us, even if it goes against the traditional aspects of Southern culture and church. Listen, I don't want to scare you. We're not going to like do things that are just way outside of truth. Again, Jesus crucified, resurrected is our base. I'm not going to bring any snakes or anything, don't worry. They freak me out. I'll let that junk stay in the Old Testament. But if we are to correctly build a biblical worldview in the face of big questions and big issues, then we got to do it together. And I'm not scared of that. Because people matter more than my fear. And I believe that this will serve to date the most challenging series that we've ever done. I believe that this, this series, as we walk through the next four weeks, has a propensity to either dismantle us and the southern culture of the church or to absolutely free us and that we will see dozens and dozens of people who thought they had no home be baptized into one that never goes away. but it has the propensity to do either or. And so when the question arises in the next few weeks of how we handle sin, how we handle redemption, how we handle heaven and hell and abortion and hurt and pain, the answer must begin with, I have decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That must be the starting point. And over the next month, we'll see where we end up. But I hope and I pray that you will be there with me, even when it's hard. Because there are people right now who have no idea that they have a place, who have no idea that they have a Savior, who have no idea that they have a hope. And if Jesus can save a thief on a cross, he can save a 17-year-old mom who made a terrible mistake. He can support the broken family. He can counsel the couple falling apart. He can remove sickness and disease and addiction and hardship. He can bring freedom. But it starts with knowing nothing except for Jesus and him crucified.
Let me pray. God, you love us. And I don't know what else matters. Lord, as we wrap up our worship today, pray that that would be everything to us. God, I pray that you would move in our church. For those who are sick and hurting and healing and dealing with death, Lord, it feels like like Satan has come against so many people in our church these last two weeks. So many people are sick. So many people are worn down and beaten down at work, questioning if they're doing what it is you've actually called them to. So many people are dealing with children who are hurt, So many people are dealing with death, hardship, and health issues. So, Father, I pray that you would deliver us from those things. Because, God, your redemption is alive and active. It has already happened for those things that we're going to do this week where we lack faith and we forget who you are. Lord, I pray and I beg you that you would Bring people who need to hear hope, who need to hear that it's okay for them to wonder, who need to hear that you have a plan for them, that you grieve with them, that you hurt with them, that as Satan has used every tool he can to hurt us and to harm us, to separate us from each other and to separate us from you, that it will never be enough because your grace is sufficient in all things. And so, Father, I pray that our hearts this week would be to only know you and you crucified and nothing else. Lord, that you would drive us to a place where we actively seek those who need to know that truth and that hope, that we're not saving them to conservatism or to moralistic ambiguity, but, God, we are wanting them to come and know you and have their eternities changed because that's all that matters. And so, Father, help us to love recklessly. Help us to seek you. Help us to hold on to you like a lost child, yearning for their parents and security and hope. Help us to seek you in that way. Because, God, there are people dying every day because they don't know that there is hope for them. And so, Father, I pray and I beg that you would bring them here so they would hear the gospel. Break our hearts, Father. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you were encouraged by the message and you feel closer to Christ than you ever have before. If you'd like to learn more about our ministry, visit us in person or... Help support our mission as we seek to love Jesus, serve others, and live unified. Check us out online at trailside.church, or you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks so much for listening, and we can't wait to see you again soon.